1: The illustrious Jabber bids you
0: welcome. (laughs) I'm going to regret this.
1: I'm Pete Mitchell. He's Peyton Jones. And this is the Church Planner Podcast, brought to you by Church Planner Magazine. Hey, Church Planner, this is Pete. And this is Peyton Jones. And uh, we're here for our third installment of the Don Stoner Show. Woo! Don Stoner, Don
2: Stoner, the best kind of stoner there is. Woo! (laughs) That was your theme song. It doesn't get much better than that, Don.
3: The family name was Steiner. And when we emigrated to the United States in the early or 1700s, we changed it to Stoner so we'd blend right in and wouldn't stand out. <laughs> uh, that worked until about 1968.
2: I was gonna say we would have gotten away with it too, if we weren't for those meddling kids back well, in the sixties. I correct. was just gonna
1: say now that he lives in California, he does fit in as a Stoner. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean,
3: I went to college in the sixties. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: You must Did have heard any very Stoner popular. jokes during that time did you and and not only that you were a crazy scientist like you could have actually been the walter white of the 60s you're like oh drugs i could know make what? You
1: those. did we ask him our question that we always ask by the way
2: kids uh stay in school don't do drugs uh this podcast does not in any way endorse the use of uh narcotics or illegal drugs or substances
3: uh, and let's prescribe by a doctor
2: did you do take aspirin.
3: I didn't take aspirin during the sixties. I was trying real hard to stay away from drugs.
1: Yeah. Good for you, man. Did we ask you, I don't remember. And it could just be because I'm turning into Peyton. My memory's going. Um, One of our questions that we always ask our guests, and I can't remember if we asked it to him. Did we, the, the very first question we always ask, do you remember Peyton? How he got saved? Yeah. Did we ask him that? Did we ask you that, Don? I don't think. I don't know did. which question you're supposed to How, how did you, you come to faith? Yeah, tell us your story oh, sorry, of how you I, came to I faith. Question.
3: Oh, well, my parents were Christians, and I was a good little boy and went to church every day. <laughs> and I was sitting in the primary department on a little green chair about six inches off the ground. Um, and now, were, were you
1: still a, a kid or were you full-grown adult sitting on that chair? I was
3: six years old, maybe. Okay. I'm not really sure. I might have been seven. Um, I'll, I think I'll give it six, but I'm not certain. Uh, I was singing the song, Come Into My Heart, Lord Jesus, and I thought it would be cool if I sang it meant it. And I thought I was the only person on the planet that knew if you sang that song, meaning it, Jesus would indeed come into your heart. I, t- I tried it, and he did, and I thought, gee, that was really strange.
2: Hmm. Um,
3: I didn't know what had just happened, and it took me a long time to figure it out. I have friends that had stranger experiences getting saved. One of them got saved at a seance. Wow. Wow. Yeah, um, same church, actually. He's next door. The house next to that church mm-hmm. became a commune, and he was a hippie living at that commune. And there was a fellow that I met at the church many years later after I'd figured out what Christianity meant. It was kind of crazy. He was an ex hippie that had recently converted and he, uh, the guys at the commune decide to have a seance and the demons come and drive them out of the house. So they say, well, let's try our seance in the backyard. So they try to call this the demons again. And I don't know what they're thinking. They're probably loaded, obviously. So. This friend, everyone called Nick the Greek comes up to, up to them and say, says, Hey guys, what are you doing? And they explained they were having a seance and the demons had cast, to start driven them out of the house. And he said, Oh, I know what you did wrong. You're uh, calling down um, bad spirits. Here, let me help you. And he takes, Oh dear. I have to figure out how to turn the stone phone off. There we go. That's you calling me, apparently. Um, I don't, (laughs) my phone is strange.
2: (laughs) (laughs) There's a little delay on your phone because I think I called you an hour and a half ago.
3: Oh, that's interesting.
2: (laughs) But since we're talking metaphysics, quantum science, all that, you know, quantum physics, let's let's just roll with it.
3: So Nick says, "Uh, here, let me lead the seance for you. (laughs) He has them all form a circle and they join hands and he says, we're going to call down a good spirit. Everyone bow your heads. Jesus, come into our hearts right now, and he leads them in the sinner's prayer. That's rad. And, they're, and everyone in that circle had a weird change in their life after that, wow. because they were opening to admitting spirits into their lives, <laughs> and the fellow led them all in the center's prayer at this seance. So this friend of mine, Tommy Acevedo, is one of those loaded teenagers in the circle, and he knows something's happened to him, but he doesn't know what. <laughs> he had the same kind of start I did.
2: That's amazing.
3: Yeah, but That's yeah, cool.
2: That's really he's cool. He's still a friend
3: to this day.
2: <laughs> I love the fact that the way that God brought you to Christ, Don, was just through the very humble... Um, simplicity of being a child because as your brain grew as a young Don Stoner, I feel like this is like, like I'm Stanley, as young Don Stoner's brain began to develop, uh, reader, you know, uh, like a, it's your origin story. Like we're going to talk about how you became like a, a super brain. And, uh, this is by way of introduction. I don't think that ever guest.
3: happened, honestly. Well, I learned how to trick people along the way. I think I learned. There how have to been how many an smart.
2: uncomfortable silence where you will bust something out that is so above my pay grade, uh, mentally and intellectually, that I'm like, okay. Let me explain it to you. There will be a stunned silence here, and I'll laugh. But here's the thing. Um, you were very accessible. You're, you're a friend to us. You've been a church planning partner with us. Um, we felt, uh, I'll never forget doing that open mic night, uh, at Portello where you were kind of like the big guns. You were the artillery in the back. When I do meetings like that, whether it was in Wales or in the States, I always tend to have somebody who's like an expert, you know, on, on a particular subject. We right. just kind of keep you in the back. Uh, like the Philistines had Goliath. We had you it gave um,
3: me a heads up, and I spent half an hour on the internet reading about it first.
2: <laughs> but you know the the thing is, is that uh, where we're, we're, we're what what we're doing today, guys. If you if you haven't joined us for the last few weeks, so we have Don Stoner. Uh, he is a scientist. Um, he is. A believer. Um, and we've been talking over the last few weeks. I highly suggest that you go back and listen. Uh, we never know where Don's going with this stuff, but we told him we're going to give you three weeks. We're we're almost kind of sure that
1: Don doesn't know where he's going with this stuff too. Pretty much,
2: correct. Pretty much, but it's, it's been great. And so what we said was, look, we want you to talk about. You know all the things that are kind of fascinating that you can interact with uh not only intelligent non-believers with but even like you you swim with sharks and you're in regular groups talking to scientists at a very high level um you are you're open about your faith you're bold in what you share you're also not foolish um in what and how you share and i think one of the the gifts that you've been to the church is helping people understand um that you don't have to check your brain to be a a a believer committed to scripture committed to faith committed to um you know uh, you know the, even the creation of of the world which often comes under fire and so uh, you wrote a book called a new or a new look at an old earth and it is a fantastic book. I highly recommend that you get it. Um, it actually is the the book that changed my view on um, Young Earth, Old Earth. And because it was thoroughly biblical, it was thoroughly uh, well-researched, it was reasonable. But, uh, but that's who we got on the show today. And uh, if you like compact discs and ever use them, you should thank Don because he had a part in inventing those. So, um, yeah.
1: So, welcome. Welcome, Don. Well, thank you. What do you want to do? I want to ask you a question of, since you grew up as a Christian and in the church, you know, I'm sure your church, I'm not sure, but I would (laughs) assume that your church growing up was very much like the common church today in that, you know, the earth is young and uh, man was just created a few thousand years ago. and That
3: hadn't happened yet. Hmm. I was raised at an American Baptist church. Okay which was fairly traditional. It wasn't until uh, Whitcomb and Morris came out with the Genesis flood that, it, that the young earth teaching started catching on. Back before then, it, pretty much all Christians believed some form of evolution and that the earth was old. This is a new fad, the young earth thing. It actually was started by the visions of Ellen G. White and about the same time Charles Darwin was writing, 18— uh, 18, So Ellen 18,
2: G. White, for those of you that don't know, was uh, a Christian. Yeah, yeah.
3: Uh, at, uh, at least effectively the founder, whether officially or not, there's right. some disagreement. But uh, she had visions as a young girl, and one of her visions was that the days were literal ordinary 24-hour days instead of what the whole church believed back then. The whole old Earth thing was actually uh, taught universally. It was come up with uh, thought up, conceived by a scientist who was a Christian named Hutton, who, studying the geological record, had determined that the Earth was old, And all Christians said, "Sure, I don't have any trouble with that. There are different ways of understanding Genesis to accommodate that. But Ellen G. White had a vision in which God presumed, presumably, ostensibly told her that the days were ordinary and that she had to worship on the seventh day, seventh day Adventist we go, uh, to keep the pattern. And that's why it was so important that these be literal days instead of longer days. Otherwise, there's no reason to worship on the seventh day. And she wrote it in a collection of her visions, and she later wrote about Noah's flood and had some crazy ideas about that. Excuse me for calling them crazy, but uh, she had a, a geometrically perfect earth, meaning completely ugly, in my opinion, mountains that were all shaped like perfect cones and things like that, if I remember correctly. It's been a long time since I read this. She described it as being beautiful, and then the flood supposedly messed it all up and made it look like how it is today, you know, created things like Yosemite Valley and other ugly Mars on the on the surface of the Earth. Um, none of the Seventh-day Venice at the time had any trouble with this it, until a young kid named George McCready Price came along, and he'd had a few science classes and he um, realized he had some problems with trying to make her visions uh, con- concur with science, so he did some studying, and what he did was sat down and wrote uh, The New Geology. He basically rewrote all of geology in a nice gray textbook about, let's see, two and a quarter inches thick, which I did read, and it was essentially – um Whitcomb and Morris's book, the uh, the Genesis flood, it, they borrowed a lot of his ideas anyway to make their book. They took some of his arguments and put footnotes on them to make them look more scientific than Price's just retelling of the story with, with his uh, ideas of how, about how to make it fit White's visions. But it was essentially the same thing repackaged. And now I'm wondering if it was The Waters Above or, or if that was Whitcomb's book, and I don't have either of the books with me right now, so I can't check. But it was either The Genesis part, or if I'm wrong about that, it would have been The Waters Above, uh, earlier books, uh, earlier book by, this, uh, by at least Whitcomb, if not Whitcomb and Morris. So it got repackaged in something that looks scientific, and at that point, the church started catching on to it, the fundamentalists first, and later a lot of other churches. But that was later in the 60s, maybe 1968, by the time it hit the Calvary Chapel circuit. And Chuck had quit uh, Gish and Morris and some of the guys come out and present it. And after that, it pretty much became canonized, and I was completely horrified by it. Mm. And it took me a few years to get my act together and write my own book to it was. Let's see. I, I might have been about a decade. Let's see, a couple of decades. I, I was a, a full score of years late responding to the crisis. I didn't have my act together well enough to to write a textbook or get anyone to let me teach it or anything until two decades later.
1: So I didn't realize uh, it was such a new thing.
3: Yeah, it, it's. They teach that it was taught by all the apostolic fathers. In my book, uh, at least the new edition of it, chapter chapter six, I believe, uh, I added a chapter from the old edition about Noah's flood and the origins of the, the young earth teaching and went through all the apostolic fathers and showed why, showed why they did not teach what the young earthers claim they taught. Josephus, for example, says that he understands why the word day was used in Genesis chapter uh, 1, and says that he's ready to write about it, but uh, since he's planning on giving a treatise on it, he'll get back to it later is what, how he presents it. He never got back to it, so he never got to find out what he would have said. But if anyone tells you Josephus wrote about it, that's uh, an incorrect statement of what Josephus said. It's a simple error. Thomas Aquinius, um, I think he believed the days were all a thousand years long. Origen thought they were very long and definite periods of time, proves it from his understanding of Hebrews chapter 4. Oh, who who else was there? Uh, Augustine spiritualized them. He thought they that because there was an evening and morning before the sun and moon were created, they couldn't be literal days at all. Right. Uh, There are all kinds of views. I couldn't find anyone who said there were 24-hour days, but it wouldn't surprise me if one of the ancients did. It's just that all the ones, the young earthers, quote, didn't happen to say that. Hmm. And now I've lost my train of thought, of course.
1: What I, what I find interesting is probably the thing that we had the biggest pushback on from our last podcast episode was the flood.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and of course, that's, again, it's like touching the third rail uh-huh. in, the, well, in the Protestant community. There's and, plenty of
3: evidence on it.
1: Well, yeah, but they're not concerned about evidence because they're just, this is what my English translation of the Bible said. But it was funny because I'd already read an article by an apologist who used the Bible to disprove the whole earth um, flood theory, as opposed to a regional flood. So I was already open and exposed to that, that concept. And I was trying to find that article. I couldn't find it, but I found another one by a guy over at uh, stands to reason. And he goes, you got to realize that more is written about the Genesis flood in the rest of the Bible than was written in Genesis. So you really have to read everything and he was pointing out verses in you know Peter where he's basically saying this was a regional thing and that was what they all understood it as but it was interesting to see the pushback that we got from uh from our listeners which i mean it doesn't surprise me at this the it's, slightest right it's in
3: Josephus too you can read about the flood as a regional flood in say, Josephus Josephus no kidding retelling there's but but according to tradition Josephus had a deal with Titus that uh, when he took Jerusalem, Josephus would get the temple scrolls. Now, whether or not he was able to salvage them from the fire, of course, is a, a sticky question, and I wouldn't be able to come down either way on that. Just as Josephus never said, mm. I received the temple scrolls, but he did say uh, a lot of stuff that is not considered biblical. Uh, he has lots of detail. that sounds like biblical detail that we do not find anywhere in our biblical writings suggesting he had another source. Some speculate, so speculate that somehow he did receive the scrolls. I don't have an answer for that.
1: Mm. Interesting.
2: So I, I guess, you know, kind of a, an interesting place to go is when people say, like, you brought up the age of the earth. Um, this is your, I mean, this is really your field of expertise, but that can be a sticking point because I get where people, and I was there for a long time where to me, I was like, look, everything's open to interpretation. Um, my interpretation is, is faulty, but I know the scripture is not. And so I, I wasn't sure if science was being interpreted wrong or if, um, The Bible was being interpreted wrong. That was my mindset at the time. Who's interpreting what wrong? Because it's, and that's what I was going to say is, is, I mean, if we're even right now in the present time with, with our uh, vaccines um, and that whole debate raging, I'll listen to both sides and I'm like, you're both getting stuff wrong about that. I I come from the medical field and I'm like, (laughs) you're both getting things wrong about vaccines.
3: Back in the dark ages, when I went to college, it was taught that science was never settled. That changed when uh, global warming was being pushed. All of a sudden, science was settled for the first time ever. And my thought was, what? I've never heard the science (laughs) was settled. I pulled out my old textbooks, and sure enough, it wasn't settled. Never will be.
2: Right. Right.
3: But when I started to to suggest that maybe global warming right, might be wrong, I was censored.
2: Well, and that, that's the thing is like, when you're looking at medical, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, like years ago realizing that that Chinese medicine, you know, Asian medicine, that's, that's every bit as good as our medicine, as Western medicine, um, has a completely different premise, is based on a completely different, Uh, criteria for health, which is based around your central nervous system, right? As I explained
3: last week, I'm not the expert when it comes to cutting you up and editing you, so I'm not going to make a statement. Western
2: medicine is completely based around your circulatory system. So the West focuses on the circulatory system. The East focuses on the central nervous system. So that's why all the all the you know the pressure points the the you know uh, it's all about getting the right amount of nerve stimulation to your organs rather than circulation. We don't really talk about that. So it, there, whenever we call something science, whenever we call it, you know, hey, doctors say. Yeah, but remember only four out of five doctors rep, you know, recommend crest. Like doctors have. How different many doctors opinions. did you ask? Doctors five. come. Okay. So Next time if, ask Dennis. You, if, if you go to an osteopathic doctor in this country, as opposed to, you know, just a regular medically trained doctor, they operate from a completely different set of, of understanding how the body works. So you, you don't, it's like psychology. Well, psychologists say, which school of thought are they from? You know, do they believe Anderson? Are they Freudian? Are they, are they young? You know, who, who do they follow? Like, okay, that's great. They're psychiatrists. It doesn't mean they know everything. It means they were trained in a certain way. They have a certain amount of opinions that shape how they interpret the data. But, you know, but, but the same with the Bible, right? We all come to the Bible. Look. There's a reason there's a million denominations because someone came to baptism and said, this is the way it is. And someone said, no, <laughs> someone came to communion. Someone came to church membership. Someone came to church leadership. Someone came to, you know, we have the, the, the basics of the faith, the fundamentals as it were, but there are many, many, many different interpretations of certain passages, egalitarian Calvinism versus Arminianism. Now, uh, Interpretation is suspect. That's what I'm saying. So going back to that, in my day, it was. Well, I don't know which of these I'm interpreting wrong. And I love that you said both because I'm pretty sure that's definitely the case. So what? Some I would of the love- time,
3: each gets part of it right. Most of the time, there are mistakes in both sides of any argument.
2: So, 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 how do people navigate through that? Because I know our our theme has been we've actually been talking about the issues themselves rather than how to talk to skeptics and, you know, people who are into science, which I think we can even put that off. I, I'd like to go more into this. How do you navigate through the both uh, of these, you know, interpreting the Bible and interpreting science? How do, what, what are kind of like the touch points for people as they're navigating through this, the things they can hold on to and that will navigate them? Because I think even on the, the origin of the earth, like how it was done, I think you and I even have a slightly different, um, mine's wrong, obviously, but but slightly different um, views. Like I I love playing around with ideas. You and I have talked a lot about quantum physics, um, what I can understand of quantum physics. So you you keep it low level, but we've talked, and I'm like, I think quantum physics is the stuff that angels and the supernatural works on. I think that's a whole whole nother thing. I think they have a set of rules they operate by. I think we're starting to discover that. Um, but at the same time, um, when it comes to the age of the earth, I think it's old and those days of creation, I wonder like, could these be literal days on the calendar that were not consecutive, but are punctuated equilibrium that some of the data, uh, in, in origins and science, um, and, and cosmogony that these, these things seem like all Of a sudden, you just had an explosion of a certain
1: type of life, or you had a. John's winding up. I mean, he's I know looking he's, for the looking, right book. For he's looking for something. I'm, I'm right getting book. excited.
3: <laughs> this particular book presents a theory, a theory that they're literal days, but they're days of presentation.
2: Yes. It, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like something like punctuated equilibrium, where God created, and then millions of years later, he goes right now. We're gonna, you know, he gives he gives the plants time to, th- you know, flourish. He gives they they develop and they they they. And I, I'm not even against evolution. Because this is a different evo- theory
3: in this yeah. book.
2: I'm not a uh, macro evolutionist at all, and, uh-huh. and I, I I don't know where you stand on that. I all think I you explain, might explain,
3: but I wanted to you want to hear all that. Yeah, explain go on, this go on. silly thing oh, first. Up. Go on, go on. This fellow doesn't say the days are separated by gaps. He says that there were seven consecutive days. But they were days of revelation, meaning that first God created the universe, which took the amount of time you can read into it uh, by using the scientific evidence, or you can pick anything you want for whatever reason. And then at some point, God now has to tell Adam what he did. Because Adam, of course, doesn't come along till the sixth day, however the days are to be interpreted. So he's got to have it explained. And according to the theory, God sits down uh, and tells Adam about one thing every day for another week. Different kind of week if you're older, same kind of week if you're younger. Now, this fellow, P.J. Wiseman, who wrote the book, takes the, the position that the, that the creation days were a long period of time, but the revelation days were 24 hours and consecutive. It's it's just another way of doing it. The the gaps between the individual days, work yeah. too. Except that it appears that the events happened over a period of time, even within each day, and and even had overlapping edges. Mm. So that uh, is a little bit non-scientific.
2: Okay, so here's here's one one thing that that people will sometimes say. The um, the opening chapters of Genesis are written in poetic form, almost in a formula. Of a that way is of un-
3: almost certainly true that they are poetic, yeah. in addition right. to being true.
2: So so for the purpose of having something that's more formulaic in presentation than meant to be, you were meant to dissect every jot and tittle out of this to get a scientific Understanding it's, it's the basics. God created this and there are certain components, each according to its kind, right? And God saw it was good. And he said, um, let them, you know, there's this, 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 uh, you know, flourishing, multiplying. There's this, these themes that are recurring. Things are filling. Things are multiplying. Things are doing what they're created to do. Because when you get into biblical theology, there's a, um, they they really dissect the Bible's literature. And I uh-huh. think that's really helpful. What was the intention of the author? Was the intention of the author to give you a sign, or was the intention of the author something more theological? And that with the way it's formulated, it's more important that you understand what creation was meant to do. And so the way it's presented is, let them bear according to their kind, which when by the time we get up to... Uh, mankind. Mankind is meant to produce according to its kind. He's meant to fill the the earth and glorify God by doing that, by creating more images of God in this world that God's created. But instead of producing according to their kind, man produces sin. And unfortunately, once man produces sin— Man does begin to multiply and fill the earth, but he fills the earth with sinners. And so, as you follow Genesis's narrative, he is producing according to his kind like all the rest of creation, but that's a problem, right? That's And so, when you go back, is there something more theological that we're meant to be understanding from Genesis rather than this is a science text?
3: If we rewind it all the way to the first chapter and not worry about the rest of theology getting developed over the x number of millennia. Uh, we're going back uh, 5,300 years to when Genesis was originally written. It's uh, Do I have that right or is it 5,100? Uh, I, I can't
1: fix it. It wasn't right. yesterday. That's What's the 100
3: years
2: here
1: and it there? It was over 5,000 years ago in, give in, or take.
3: Uh, yeah. Yeah
1: a few hundred years
3: and, and you can't nail it down but i just am not going to be able to do it right now everyone's <laughs> come on don Sumerian. come prepared man yeah sorry <laughs> just joking. everyone's done ever they know. write in pictoglyphs they do not write in uh, textual you know it's ideograms rather than or ideograms, I guess is how that's supposed to be pronounced, but ideograms is much easier to understand than ideograms. Um, They're writing with these little pictures, and you get one word per picture, and they're speaking ancient Sumerian, and they're thinking ancient Sumerian. The text can go a lot of different directions, and a lot's been read into that text that was never in there to begin with. It's a much simpler document than, than, I, than I pretended it was when I wrote my book, because at the time I didn't know Sumerian. I, I'm afraid I'm guilty of of not understanding what I was writing about as far as the text went. I got my my information on it from theological books. I'm not sure that at the time I was first studying it that Sumerian had been cracked yet. I, I don't really know. And I could figure it out, but I don't have time to right now to do the research, so I won't figure out whether or not the Sumerian language had been cracked when I originally studied it. But it happened at least soon after, and if not soon before. So if I had written the book now, New Look at an Old Earth, I would have had a, probably had it twice as long and had half of it being understanding Sumerian. Which would have meant nobody would have read it, instead of the three people that actually did.
1: Pete, <laughs>
2: I, I got nothing. I talked went, way
1: too much already, so he, I got to hold way, back on he, that. He went well over my head. No, so here's it's, he, it's, he lost you. At it's Samaria. a real
3: simple text. Uh, I
1: don't know if we should go down this path or not. God created
3: sky and, and earth. Day one.
1: Let's uh, separated. I want to ask birth. you. Day I two. want to ask you the question no. that that will offend ninety eight percent of our listeners. I think it's time that we, you know, offend them all with with this question. With the answer, I think to this question. I
2: know where you're going, Pete. Why do you, you always know? have to break things? Yes.
1: How <laughs> <laughs> do we talk? All
2: right. Well, right. maybe I'll tell you yes or no. I'll, I'll blink twice if you're doing it.
1: I want to know your thoughts on evolution as opposed to instant creation. I am a tongue in cheek punctuated equilibriist.
3: Do you know who Stephen Gold and Richard Dawkins are? Yes. Did you know about their famous debate and the fact that the, the two of them got together? Dawkins, of course, understood evolutionary dynamics. Which oh dear, I've misplaced my book. I had evolutionary dynamics here, and now I don't. That's interesting. Oh, now
1: now is this your, is this your daughter's house that you're at? I'm sorry. Is Introduc- this your daughter's house that you're at? Yes, it is. And do you just keep a spare library at your daughter's <laughs> yeah, house? Yeah, I do. As a matter of fact. <laughs> In, uh, introduction to population genetics. You can explore. Oh, it. I got that copy too. I, mine's not as yeah. dog-eared as yours, but you know.
3: Yeah. The the deal is, it's all mathematical. You can derive the mechanics of evolution. You can test the mathematics in the lab with bacteria and grasshoppers or mice or whatever you're playing with. And the rules all work. And it says it has to happen gradually. Uh, This is where um, Richard Dawkins is coming from. He understands the mathematics explained in this book. And it says it's got to be gradual or it didn't happen. Darwin himself understood that. And he said, there's a problem. The fossil record says otherwise. But the fossil record is imperfect. So so what? When we figure it all out, we'll see that it's gradual. Only problem is, as along came more paleontologists, a lot of time spent digging Africa in particular. And they managed to fill in all the gaps. And by golly, uh, the gaps were real. They happened at discrete times and very quickly, which violated everything that the evolutionists, meaning the people who studied population genetics, the mathematics of it, knew had to be true. So here's this crazy guy, Stephen Gould, who's a digger, like Alan Grant in the Jurassic Park series. He, he's coming from a different place. He doesn't care about the mathematics. He cares about the evidence, the hard-pulled evidence that he's pulling out of the ground. And guys like uh, Leakey and Gould, there were two Leakeys, uh, dad and son, Richard and uh, Louie. Uh, they were all gapas or ju- but punctuation. is what they call it, punctuated, equilibrious. It stays the same for millions of years, and all of a sudden, a new species appears. Why did they say such a crazy thing? It absolutely violates the mathematics and the science. Of evolution, and the answer is because that's what the fossil record says. So I'm a tongue-in-cheek punctuated equilibriumist. They say evolution changes quickly when you don't have a large population. You get a small, isolated population, and it can evolve very quickly. Is their argument? Now, anyone who's studied population dynamics, or uh, did I get that right? Population genetics will tell you that that's. Um, that's absurd. If you have a small population, it cannot evolve quickly.
1: Because it, it reason, would die out, right?
3: Well, that's what usually happens. So they had some California condors at the San Diego Zoo many years ago. They had five of them. What's going to happen to condors? So what they used to say is they're going to die. There's not enough of them to maintain the population. That genetic mutations will swamp them. Instead, what happens is a bunch of bi- uh, biologists got in there and pan-fed the little babies and made them all survive until they had a large enough population that evolution could work again. And they eventually were able to turn them loose back into into a non-captivity environment. So they succeeded, but it took intelligent intervention to make it happen. The population was too small. Now, anyone who studied population genetics knows that. Uh, and the reason I keep confusing it with evolutionary dynamics is that's this book here that has chapter three where it explains, uh, oh, I don't know if I can find it. There's a, you said no authors, Pete, no authors, no book interviews. Those aren't his books. Those aren't his books. (laughs) Are these Karen's books? Is that what I'm
1: talking? <laughs> no, no, it's it's a joke between we. we I told him I won't do a podcast when we're interviewing an author. I told him
2: I told him recently we got to get Philip Yancey. I know I can get him back on. We got it for old time's sake because we made him really mad, and I know he'll come on. And uh, Pete's like, nope, no, nope, no authors. That violates and no authors. And uh, oh, okay, by the sorry. way, by the way, I was in the car with my daughter when I'm having this conversation with Pete. And when I hang up, my daughter looks at me and goes. Pete does know you're an author, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, anyways. And don't I hate
1: those interviews where I got to interview you on your book?
2: It shows. All right, (laughs) right, let's go. Don, back to you.
3: Okay.
1: uh, Those are a couple of
3: really good books on the subject. And what they do is take opposite positions. One of them supports Richard Dawkins. The other supports Stephen Gould. And they both refute the other one. I was going to give you a short argument for why population genetics refutes uh, quick change. And that's, you put two targets on the wall. One's a little target. The other one's a big target. You blindfold yourself, uh, go back far enough that you can barely hit the wall at all, and you throw a billion darts at it. Which target catches the most darts? And the answer is the big one does. Now, favorable mutations are fairly rare. If you have a large population, you're going to get a few on the big target. If the little target is little enough, you won't get one blast of mutation on it. If you'll excuse me talking about COVID, COVID goes to India and finds a nice big population. And uh, Very quickly, you have a million cases there. I don't know what the number actually was, but I think that's at least the right ballpark or maybe it's tens of millions, I don't really know. And um, you got a a large enough population, every person that gets sick has quite a few viruses in their lungs, it's not just one. And so you you probably have billions of viruses and can a mutation occur in that large population over that long period of time that India was getting affected? And the answer is yes. There are two particular mutations. I think there were seven total in the in the Delta uh, mutation that, that made it different. But there are two of them that were on. Oh dear, in the S gene, the um the section that binds to the binds to the lung the spike protein. Mm. There is a motif and a and something larger called a. I can't remember. The motif is a very short little section of of amino acids, which has the little suction cups that hook onto the lungs. And there were two of them in that, two of the mutations occurred in that. And it was enough that it's able to hang onto the lungs a little more tightly than before. And it took a lot of of, uh, critters to come up with that very small modification. What you see in the fossil record is not that many individuals. You see very small populations that suddenly change they don't change over a long period of time and they don't change upward at a gradual rate, they suddenly have the new characteristic. And if, if uh, you're going to let me go off onto some very controversial yeah, stuff. come here? on. Hey, that's okay. why, that's why well, you why.
2: to Let me pause everyone. you right there. I was <laughs> about to ask you more controversial <laughs> questions.
1: Here's the takeaway from what you just said right there. You're basically saying, hey, like the California condor, it can only happen with intelligent Large intervention.
3: Population. Yeah. That's right. And the if you get a large enough population for a long that enough be theistic of time theistic
1: evolution.
3: You can get little tiny steps. <laughs> okay.
2: I see what you're doing, Mitchell. He's trying <laughs> to settle
1: on the old, old debate that we have regarding you. I okay. said you were a theistic evolutionist.
2: Listen, yeah. there's a well, there's a way forced- wait, wait, before you answer, before you answer, let me set this up. On Saving Private Ryan, one of my favorite movies of all time, they have this pool going about what the commander, what the captain did, right? Or the war turns out if you've not seen it, don't listen. But spoiler alert, he's a school teacher and so there's this poll going around. So that's what's happened with you over like probably the last six months. You keep popping up or maybe three months since we started talking about getting you on. And, and, and we keep having this debate and I'm like, I don't think he does, you know, but anyways, go, go on.
3: I'm not sure if I should reply to that or not.
2: Yeah, come on. Come on. Settle the score between
3: us. Okay. what What, what is it? What's the question? I missed the question.
1: No, just, I say you're a theistic evolutionist, meaning you believe in evolution, but it has to take God to actually move the pieces forward.
3: I don't like the term theistic evolution, but you're not too far off the mark. I'm I'm not. I'm going to really? take so that as a right, win. You are a heretic. I'm going to take that, that as a win. Go,
2: no, I'm teasing. I don't think that's heresy. Okay. Yeah, yeah I want uh, that,
3: to, that's what we want to hear is we want to hear kind of you, the you next, navigated. The next theoretical thing to a theistic evolutionist, I can answer by evolutionary arguments, anything that an evolutionist can argue, and I can answer by my one adjustment to which is i call the surrogate mother theory incidentally which i can explain if i haven't already i don't remember whether no, I you haven't okay well i'll do that after after i'm through answering this question uh, i can explain using that all the things that the evolutionists can't answer so what i have done is come up with something that's almost theistic evolution that explains everything but it requires the one adjustment here's the one adjustment it's on the internet. It's called the surrogate mother theory, which is a horrible name for it. And you can get it from my web page, link it, or you can search on surrogate mother theory and get it straight. I've
1: I've heard this before from him.
3: <laughs> okay, um, the uh, random mutations fittest survive would be Darwin's theory in a nutshell. That that's, explains everything Darwin's going to say. For the surrogate mother theory, it's God uses surrogate mothers. Okay? you If you're a, a genetic engineer at MIT or Caltech or wherever else you might be messing around with genes, you don't sit down and take dirt and build your new critter. What you do is you take some DNA and you make some modifications to it and... Uh, maybe you take pieces from two different kinds of animals. If you're building a camera, uh, that mythical being like a harpy, that's part one animal, part another animal. You take the DNA, you edit it together, and then you have to come up with a a mommy to implant it in to have it grow. And I'm sloppily calling that a surrogate mother since it's, it's a little more extreme than a surrogate mother would be. Now you pull out your Bible. This is going to become biblical. Sorry about that. I didn't intend to become a theologian. And open it to the book of Luke. See if oh, I is he cracking the Bible there.
1: open? Yeah. I didn't know heretics did that. And where am I going? I'm hey, going to Luke. I man.
2: just want to say, I called it when I first met him.
3: A heretic? <laughs> now, I'm about to really become a heretic, too. This is, of all my heresies, this is the least favorite of but, my But, you
2: know, books. this is the thing, Don, is you're probably the guy that believes the Bible more than almost anyone I've ever met. So it's not, it's just, like I said, it's not the Bible that's ever suspect with you. It's our
1: interpretation. Right. I think that's important. It's an important, so
2: I trust you, man.
1: I thought one of the biggest takeaways from the last episode we did was, what was the author's intent? Not what is our translation, but what was the author's actual intent when they wrote this?
3: In this case, it's what did the author actually say that we read over and over again and we don't even see the words. Because it's so plain that it's there in any translation you try to read it in. Okay, you're Mary. You've just been uh, interrupted very rudely by someone who tells you you're pregnant, right? Uh, that which is conceived of you is? Born of the Holy Spirit. Uh, God overshadowed you, Mary. Yeah. And you, you. because of that, he, the thing that's going to be born will be called the Son of God. Okay? This is Luke chapter 1. And, uh I I found where it was but I, I also remembered I didn't bring my reading glasses so I can't read the blasted thing. So <laughs> tell so me what I, verse I, I, I can I read it have to tell you what it says from memory and I just did and you can look at it yourself and find the actual verses cuz the numbers are too small for me to see in my bible. <laughs> but in any case we all know the passage. You're going to call this thing the son of god that that which is uh, you've conceived and will give birth to. Oh, you've got your reading glasses here. Here's my Bible. See if you can
2: read it. Pete does that when he wants to seem really smart. And then yeah, when he's negotiating. He, he, did you see how much his... smarter he
3: got? <laughs> what was cool? when, 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 you, when you offer
2: yeah. it.
3: Mean, okay. Yeah. Okay. So now we know <laughs> to watch out for things called the son of God, right?
2: I need my glasses to show that when we talk with Don Stoner, you know, all boats rise. You know, all the okay. boats are lifted up.
3: Now we flip a couple chapters ahead and we get, get to one of the most boring chapters in the whole Bible, unless you count the first 10 chapters of Chronicles or something. So and so begat so and so, begat so, or no, it was the son of, in this case, they didn't begat. We're going backwards. So and so was the son of so and so. And we're starting with, uh, with basically Jesus, Jesus genealogies, and we're taking it back all the way to Adam, who was the son of.
2: Gosh, what does it say, son of God? Yeah,
3: that's right. What do you what, what? Why was Jesus called the Son of God?
2: Because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was he was created directly.
3: By he God. was created directly. How was he birthed? Right. By Mary. By Mary, this is what is called the son of God. We are, we receive a definition of sorts. Now, we're not using pure logic here. We're using linguistics instead of logic. We're saying we've defined a word and we see that or a phrase. Yes, and we're seeing the phrase see used saying, again. Yeah. If you construct a syllogism, this is an invalid syllogism because we don't have enough to nail it down. But oh, look,
2: Pete, remember we were talking about invalid syllogisms and we were uh-huh. saying how down we get about those? I get $2. I won the bet.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Good for
2: you. $2. Now you just got to okay, leave me messages. Just because that say that. Sorry, if, sorry, Don. If
3: something is called the Son of God, that doesn't mean everything you call the Son of God suddenly becomes conceived of a virgin or something like that. But we do have a li- linguistic link to what the Son of God means. And Adam is being called the Son of God. And we've got a clue here that suggests he was born of a virgin something else that wasn't quite exactly human. Now, is this possibly how God did his creating? In which case, the steps would all have to be small. Little things like bad RH factors, RH positive, RH negative. Now, this is your field. So, so,
2: let me me ask you. I'm going to interrupt you for a second. What you're saying is... Over time, God was was in the same way he intervenes in the Gospel of Luke, you're saying he's intervened. That's kind of the argument here. Intervene. That is, is what throughout. I am
3: suggesting. Okay. All right. What would that predict if that were God's mechanism for creating? We have this clue here that we've never seen. There are a lot of things that that it predicts, for example, how was Eve made? God takes something out of Adam's side. Uh, and he he calls his wife T, which is the Sumerian word for side or rib. Is it actually
2: a rib, or is that an open to translation? Because I think it might have been his appendix, first appendicitis.
3: Uh, The the word T, and the only reason I'm saying T, is because there's a pun in Sumerian in Genesis. Wow. Chapters 2 and chapter 3. Adam (laughs) names his wife two different things for two different reasons. Adam called his wife woman because she was taken from his side. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living in chapter 3. Okay, what's going on? Why does he give her two different names? Why are they different? And the answer is in Sumerian, they're the same word. Oh, The word is T. It's a Sumerian pun. It means many different things. Uh, It means... uh, Shaft, roo, arrow, flight, life and Sumerian, if it, if it could, could be a rib. If Adam names his wife T because she was taken from his side, that suggests a rib.
2: Okay, Which but is, does it also suggest this is why men's two favorite things are women and ribs? Because. Do in, I have in, to answer that? No, sorry. Keep going. <laughs> I,
1: <laughs> I, I'm with women, forget ribs. <laughs> I actually am with Dawn on that one. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Did I ever tell you
1: I married a farm court
3: nominee? <laughs> <laughs> I went into shock. <laughs> I said yes. I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't yes. <laughs> That's great. You've seen Aladdin propose to Princess Jasmine, I suspect. I have. So this little girl has uh, hair going down to her behind. Uh, absolutely gorgeous little girl with kind of Asian-looking eyes a little yeah, bit. Debbie, yeah. Debbie has little Asian-looking eyes, and she had hair going down to her behind when I asked her. And what Jasmine did, instead of saying yes, was she shook her head and sent waves down her hair. Debbie did that. Oh. And I can imagine Aladdin going into shock. <laughs> <laughs> because the next I know thing- what clinical shock feels like when it happens to right.
2: Yes. When, okay, I, anyway. when I woke up, she was, Don, are you okay? Slapping my face. Don, are Something
3: you okay? Something like that, yeah. Right. right. Turns out she went into
2: shock, too. Only- <laughs> She's she been in shock ever since she said yes.
3: I <laughs> put her into shock ever. Okay. Okay, I'm trying to remember where we were. I'm telling about Adam and and Eve here. And Sorry. We've got a pun. We've got the rib. Yeah, the
2: Sumerian pun, so, yeah.
3: definitely going to be a rib. He names his wife Life, which is from arrow to flight and then to life, because she would become the mother of all the living. So, he named his wife T because she was from his side and she would become the mother of all the living. It's a double pun. It goes two different directions, so it becomes a pun when it goes two different directions. Okay. An untranslatable pun. Okay, let's say God takes a rib. How's he going to make a woman out of a rib? Well, there's DNA in the dumb right. thing, right? So right. it doesn't have to be a very big piece. It doesn't have to be a whole rib. It just has to be a piece of it. Enough that he can get some chromosomes. Adam has an X and a Y chromosome and everything else to make a whole human. You grab the, the X chromosomes and you throw away the Y. You stick them together like a genetic engineer could do easily. You stuff it into a surrogate mother.
2: I've never thought about
3: it from that perspective. That's uh-huh. amazing. And now you have to wait a while, don't you? How long are we going to wait? Oh, <gasps> Adam gave birth. Himself, <laughs> Pete. <laughs>
2: Everything's painful. come full circle. We're think, back to this. I feel like I feel, I feel like Loki. Like now that we're in the right, we're in the sacred timeline again.
1: I just rewatched that movie. He's talking about a movie called Predestination, starring Ethan Hawke, and the guy—it's a time <laughs> traveler. He ends up marrying himself and giving birth to himself. And I'm like, this is the greatest movie ever.
2: It's a time travel movie. Okay. It's not Anyway, sorry, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, You have
3: to listen. Pay attention. God uses surrogate mothers, not surrogate fathers.
2: Okay. I know. I'm only teasing.
3: Okay. How long are we going to wait?
1: It depends. Yeah. You got the kids got to grow up if you're birthing a kid.
3: Yeah. And so what what does Adam, wait a second now. Didn't Ooh. Adam wake up after his nap and say, "Wow, well, there's a woman next to me. Is that what happened?
1: Yeah. Yes, he did. Why do you say that? That's know. not the actual verbiage. Doesn't it say something like at last you brought her to me or something like that?
3: Uh, there, there are a couple of verses. That Gosh, dang it, Don. I walked into one of your traps again. Because it violates our little story. We've been told about. Yeah, Genesis. it's true. You're right. I pulled yeah. my Bible out again and I can't read it. So what does it say? when, how does how do Adam bone me? of my
1: bone, flesh of my flesh? You've uh, last you brought her to me, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, there's it something says, like that. But go here we go. Earlier here we go. I'm that. gonna
2: read it. I'm gonna read it. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man brought said, her this... to
3: the man. Where was she that she needed oh. to the man? She was somewhere else. How many of us ever saw that? We've all been told he wakes up and there she is laying next to him. Yeah. That's not the truth, is it? Yeah. She was no. somewhere else. We never saw that because we didn't have the right theory. We were told a lie. And every time we've read our Bible, we haven't even seen the words that are right there in black and white on right. the page. The words say she was brought to the man. You're right. And yeah. then, of course, there's going uh, to be translated at long last. The other verse you were speaking of—it's been a I while.
2: Can, I can promise you, if I had preached this Sunday, I would have literally preached it that Adam woke up with Eve next to
3: him. Uh huh. And next time, you'll read your Bible first, right? No, Ooh. anything?
2: No, <laughs> no. I think we've, I think we've settled that. That pretty much is not, <laughs> not what happens when we're reading the Bible, right?
3: Yeah, we see what we think we're going to see, right? Our, our preconceptions change what we see right now i run over my leash here and i'm pulling my headset off the good news is
2: don we don't have to end at 11 so if debbie loans you to us a little bit longer pete and i can go a little bit longer oh cool yeah all right where are we going but what well real quick <laughs> we're we'll finished we? the story yeah
3: well, th- maybe we finished it
2: oh, okay all right so okay. so okay but what so what happened? Oh, punctuated
3: so, equilibrium okay yeah. this is how i think god did all of his creatures Every single one of them it takes a female of a similar species, which is why you can genetically link the whole thing into what the, the cladus or that one form of evolutionists call the tree of life, where you start with some protozoic thing, uh, blue-green algae probably. And if you follow cytochrome C, which is kind of a, a slow mutating um, protein, that's in the mitochondria that doesn't, doesn't, um, sexually combine with other things, stays, stays pure. You can follow the sequence that God used in, in creating different species because he didn't bother changing the mitochondria. He left, he left it back the same way as it was originally. And it leaves a footprint of the path he took. Creating each new species. When the paleontologists like uh, Gould, not Gould, uh, yeah, Gould was a paleontologist, he was more of a, a book guy than a field guy. Um, Johansson, Donald C. Johansson, uh, the Leakey family, Marion and, and her husband and son, um, what they see is the step where God suddenly engineers something that's Close enough to the other thing that a female of the earlier species can give birth to the new species, but different enough that you can tell you 're dealing with something else that you're not dealing with the same thing and what that does is it explains everything when you have that theory that you can't you don't have to be afraid of any piece of evidence anywhere. Stephen Gould is not afraid of the fossils he's afraid of Population genetics, the mathematics. Richard Dawkins is not afraid of population genetics. He's afraid of the fossils. When those two got together and debated, Richard Dawkins says, We're never going to have this debate again. This is tearing down science. You know, it's anti scientific to actually discuss something, was uh-huh. sort of the way it is. I had an opportunity to debate, uh, come on, let me get the right one, Richard Dawkins one time. It was a complete accident. I was not scheduled to debate him. I was in a small lecture hall. He was giving a short before the lecture. Lecture. There might have been twenty college students in the in the in the lecture. And I heard about it. And I got there to to sit in on it. When the questions started, I asked Dr. Dawkins about punctuated equilibrium. And he immediately asked me if I was a Christian and would refuse to answer the questions on the presupposition that I was a Christian and you can't possibly argue with a Christian. And the reason was, is because my question involved um, Stephen Gold, and he doesn't want to debate Stephen Gold or anyone who's trained in Stephen Gold's theory because he knows he will get nailed. Mm. And eventually he got to the point where he had painted himself into a corner where I was able to ask the question, Uh, uh, Dr. Dawkins, regarding your theory that God is very complex, is that in principle falsifiable? At which point, the whole lecture hall, a small lecture hall, 20 students, all started laughing because he kind of shot himself in the foot at this point. And, And... it was the wrong kind of victory. It was the victory where I won the battle and lost the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, next time I encountered Richard Dawkins, he pretty much refused to talk to me. wouldn't answer Wouldn't answer uh, uh, say, "Hey, I recognize you." When I put my hand up, and when he finally did, because mine was the only hand in the auditorium, I had laryngitis that day, and he uh, pretended that I was confused rather than he couldn't hear me, and and mocked me for ans- asking the question, which I was unable to even voice at the time, but uh, that, that was an example of playing it wrong and losing the war. Next time I talk to one of those guys, it was Donald Johansson, and he's my friend. I'll never have any trouble with him, but of course he was on my side of the, the same punctuated equilibrium issue. But where I'm going from this is the two sides will not debate, because each of them can refute the other person's evidence with what they know for or the other person's theory, for what they know for sure. What mm. the paleontologists know for sure is that it happens in jumps. What uh, the uh, book and laboratory people know the ones who are dealing with the, the experimental things where they're actually mutating them by, by various processes know for sure is that the jumps don't happen. COVID is an example of a jump. It's, it's a camera. It's part pangolin and part bat. The spike protein is from a pangolin, the rest of the critter is from a bat, and there are all kinds of theories about how this happens in nature, but there's a third entity involved in it. There's what is called a furin marking point, or furin cleavage point, which is covered by U.S. patent 7223390. Should I give that to you again? That's you the literally greatest. just quoted this from memory. We've never had a guest go, and this is patent number. Okay. <laughs> the reason I am telling you this is because I, anyone who's curious can look it up. It's on the internet. I'll give you the number again. It must again. be true
1: then. It's on the it, internet.
3: You, yeah, it's on the internet, right? It's a government uh, government posting of all the U.S. patents. You can get it all over the place. There are multiple copies of it, so you don't have to trust one. And you can actually pull the real patent if you want to see it. If you've all got your pens now, I'm going to give it to you again: seven, two, two, three, three, nine, zero. The inventor's name is Dennis T. Brown, and he uh, also f- filed a refiling. Oh, and I can't remember that number, but it's something like
1: nine, one, two, one. Get your act together, Don. Don't yeah, even I'm don't sorry. even come with no fake yeah, news on, on, on this podcast. No fake news. Come prepared for okay, safe, man. Okay, I,
3: I apologize. I, <laughs> I'm not prepared. Okay, but there is a refiling. This He files the same thing again, drops a few of the claims. Now, what's interesting is what he's patenting is this fear and cleavage point. Patent one, or patent claim one, there are things you claim when you're making a, a patent application, is uh, to edit this fear and cleavage point into a virus that doesn't have it. Um, Pat, uh, claim number two, use a sequence RRXR. Or maybe, no, it was RXRR, and I'm sorry for getting that backward, but I did get it backward. I remember it was RXXR, and explains in the text that it could be a trivial variation. Of course, you could make it RRXR instead of RXRR, right? That would be trivial. And then he gives a couple of other unique variations that sort of sort of work in the claims three and four. And then you go down to claim. Um, oh dear, it's either eight and nine or nine and ten. And I'm sorry, but nine is one of them. Uh, and he. Claims, the reason
2: we're laughing. The reason we're laughing, Don, is Pete and I's conversation usually hovers somewhere around inventing new nicknames for him, like Peter Potato Head or things like that,
3: which uh-huh. happened today. Well, the reason I know about (laughs) patents is I have three of them and wrote my first one and actually had to study them. Uh, But claim number nine is either one of two claims and the one before it or the one after it. And I'm sorry, I can't remember. The the two in order are the first one, uh, a virus that is 100 times more infectious than without the furin cleavage point in there. And the other is a virus that is 1,000 times more infectious without the cleavage point. And you go to the coronavirus sequence, which you can also find on the internet, and it is an RR, which means uh, one particular amino acid, RR, and the X can be anything, so it doesn't matter what it is. And I think it's an A in this case. And then there's another R that wasn't edited in that was already there in the the bat DNA that's up against the, the first part of the sequence, that finishes off the R-R-A-R. And it's from the first of three things he suggests, and it's backwards, which is a trivial variation of it. And so this thing gets edited in from the patent. And what a surprise. You end up something that's completely novel, that is so much more infectious than anything ever done before. that supposedly happened um, naturally. But it's a camera of three things. Thing one is a piece of bat bat virus DNA. Pangolin virus DNA. I think I might have just said bat and pangolin. It's not the critters. It's the viruses that infect them. Of course, it's a, it's a camera of those two. And the third thing, it doesn't come from any critter. It
1: came from a patent. Well, Don, we all know that coronavirus came because a penguin kissed a bat. So don't yeah, be trying penguin. to use this science Hocus Pocus on us.
3: Yeah. Well, I'm not trying to I've use i Madagascar. Focus, it could happen. I'm just telling you things that you can check for yourself. You can download the pangolin virus sequence from the internet. You can download the bat sequence. You can compare the two in the early coronavirus and see all the mutations that have happened over the couple of years and the millions of cases that we've had, hundreds of millions of cases, actually. Um, probably won't, it might be a whole billion of them before we're actually done, or if we count undocumented cases. Um, How much evolution has actually happened in the wild since then with all of these cases everywhere? And you see not nearly as much as as when the thing first originated in this one hocus-pocus thing. Now, what is more likely that the, uh, the two pieces of DNA Mutated together somehow because of an accident of infection that happened with two simultaneous species that don't live within hundreds of miles of each other even. And a third thing also jumps in at the same time, which didn't come from any animal, but did come from a patent which had been issued about thir- uh, fifteen years previous to to this event. and there's no evidence of it happening anywhere in nature. You don't see anything like Two parts of this and not the third are all three of them in any creature in the wild. It only shows up in Wuhan. Now, what are we supposed to make of this? If we are punctuated equilibrious, we think that there wasn't enough time. If we're gradualist, we think it couldn't possibly have happened. It is just completely out of line. This is the thing that Stephen Gould will be accusing you of being a Christian for suggesting which is uh, about the dirtiest insult he can take and slap on anyone. And I'm slipping out of the picture here. Not that that matters. Um, so what are this we going to is gonna When Don gets
2: really into what he's saying, he eventually starts sliding out of his chair.
3: Yeah. And eventually I disappear <laughs> altogether and just comes pure thought, which is really scary. It's really hard to get me back. Okay. What are we supposed to believe? And the answer is, there were a lot of biologists that worked in laboratories and said, hey, I could have done that myself. This was a real simple edit together, and I can see the pangolin sequence. I can see the bat sequence. That's a real simple cut and paste, and there, I see no evidence at all of mutation in the thing. That is straight pangolin. That is straight bat. And, of course, by now, both the pangolin and the bat have softened because of real mutations. It's been long enough, two years later, You can tell the difference back then. You couldn't tell Mm. the difference. The populations were small enough. There weren't huge numbers of these viruses infecting all the billions of pangolins and bats that live all over the world. Like there are people that live all over the world.
1: So your point is intelligent intervention.
3: My point is we have a punctuation. There was a jump in the fossil record of DNA. And it was a bizarre jump. It was way bigger than anything Gould or Johansson ever claimed. And it happened all at once suddenly. And for some reason, there was a research lab that had a very poor safety record in the past of SARS virus leaking that appears to have been doing genetic mutation with federal funding from the United States. And they're claiming it wasn't gain of function, but what shows up is gain of function covered by a U.S. patent, no less. So what are we supposed to conclude? Well, all these biologists that said, hey, I could have done that myself in a lab were called conspiracists. And eventually they were shut down and censored for two years. And the reason they were censored is because they weren't going along with the status quo the way it's supposed to be. The reason I am censored when I try to bring this up, when a possibility for debate, comes up with an evolutionist is because I' am a Christian and they just don't let Christians speak because we're fools. Okay, the uh, conspiracy theories were the accusations of anyone who tried to talk sense into on the internet when this evidence first showed up, and people were saying that's Pangolin DNA and they said that's nonsense. And then two weeks later people were saying, well, yes, it is Pangolin DNA. And here's the theory for how it somehow leaked in. And anyone who said, but I could have done it myself in the laboratory was identified as a conspiracist. And the fact was, if you get a patent, one of the things, one of the requirements that I had to meet was you have to explain in the preferred embodiments, embodiment section of the patent in enough detail that any person with ordinary skill in the art can understand and know how to do it themselves. So this patent gives enough information that anyone with ordinary skill in the art can stick in a furin cleavage sequence. And it shows where to put it in the DNA sequence, which is where it was put in. It shows uh, patterns that should be used. It gave three possible patterns. The person who did it used the first one and claimed two instead of the ones in three and four. And furthermore, when they did the sequence, uh, the uh C... What was it? CRR. It, it was in the in the DNA for making um, the RNA, not DNA. The RNA for coding for it. There are six different possibilities: three times three, four times sixteen different possibilities for coding for for the R amino acid. And of them. Uh, one of the 16 combinations is the least common in bat RNA which uh, so it's not just 1 in 16 but it's way less com- possible than that that the person would have done the same sequence twice in a row that did it unless they were just typing the number in and they picked the, the first one in the patent and they typed the, the least common GCC it would have been the first one alphabetically. No, no, A T G C Yeah. It would have been the first of the two alphabetically, G's
1: and C's. A T G C um, We get the point. You don't have to be exact. We're not signed yeah, Okay. We're not gonna duplicate this. No, this I need this to be right, Pete. Yeah. Hey, well, I just want to know does Dennis Brown get a royalty on the coronavirus, or what? how does this work? He's got I the think
3: Dennis has owed royalty on it.
1: Dennis and that probably the vaccine, right? Because well, obviously it caused a problem.
2: Think, I think the point that you're making. If the point that I'm back,
3: making is that th- this is a no-brainer, it's a slam dunk. It right. was genetically engineered. Right. It was intelligent design. We can furthermore see the same thing echoed in all of evolution.
2: Right. Okay. So, so this is the question I have. So, so going back, like you were saying, the, the surrogate mother theory of punctuated equilibrium that yeah. God has injected um, almost like a stimulus or a bolus, right? Um, into uh, different uh, uh, animals. That's your theory. My, my question is, why would he do that? What would the purpose be for doing that? And how does that fit in with the idea that God rested on the seventh day that he was no longer creating?
3: Okay. According to origin, we're still in the seventh day.
2: Ooh.
3: So, okay. When Jesus is breaking the Sabbath, he says, my father works and I work still. Meaning that God breaks the Sabbath, even on the one out of seven 24-hour day schedule, but he can break his Sabbath anytime he wants to, because after all, the reason for the Sabbath was not to to put a yoke on anyone. It was it was state the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. We don't serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath is to serve us.
2: Interesting, because uh, Jesus was totally a Sabbath breaker. That is that's true.
3: correct, and so is God, as Jesus pointed out quite literally. Okay, let's see where were we. Are we done with this? My, did I didn't know you... know my that train's coming though,
2: so I'm. Yeah, no, I'm. I was chewing on it, but my train was coming, as you can hear. So that's why I, I, I was it. muted. Okay. Anyway. Okay. Explain so, so that's rad. Like, so, all the okay. scientific
3: evidence, all the biblical evidence.
2: Okay, so you believe? So let me let me just. Kind of back up because this this is why um, one of our uh, listeners got excited that Pete asked a question. I did blink twice hard so that Pete would see. Yes, this is where I knew you were going. So so okay. So you do believe in a type of evolution. Um, Going back to that, what would the no random
3: mutations, no uh, survival of the fittest, and random mutations work within the species? When it's a new species, it's not either. No random mutations. No survival fittest. It's intelligent design.
2: So you believe that new species do appear, but it's not from random mutations. Do you believe that God will sometimes God interject? engineers in new DNA
3: species. and makes it similar enough to a previous species that it is not disastrous to the mother. A baby mouse does not give birth to an elephant. Right. In fact, you can't even do, I said earlier, started to say RH factor changes in blood are enough to cause complications in humans.
2: So, so what I hear you saying... Because the according to its kind is true even with your view. Right. Like you're saying, a, an elephant does not give, Yeah, um, you know, to to if your theory is true, that actually does not violate because each does give birth according to its kind.
3: OK, that however, that phrase is, it has a technique of which in it, too, but it's okay. maybe not the time to talk about. it. Sure OK,
2: OK, but that I'm only pointing that out and I and I get that if we were to really take that apart, we'd probably need you back for another episode. Yeah. But here's the thing. This is this is kind of what I'm saying. Um so what you're actually saying is, yes, there is um there's microevolution, obviously, I know you haven't yes. really touched on that, but when it goes to macroevolution, that is divine intervention, and what you're actually saying is between Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Dawkins, neither one of them can can prove their point because they're both if right they and they're both together, wrong
3: they will get in a a bloody knockdown drag out to.
2: right. Because the evidence seems to say contradicting things. And what you're saying, what you're saying is actually, in many ways, evolution, if you understand it not the way the scientists teach it, but if you recognize it happens and then you recognize the appearance of new species, you actually have to have God. So what that you actually what you actually do when you talk to a scientist is you say, You actually can't believe in evolution without Believing in God. That's what you're that's actually arguing.
3: Yes. Wow. That's, that's how I present I did
2: not see that coming, Don Stoner. That is not something I've ever really not thought about. Not too many people see me coming at all. My mom was surprised. <laughs> I certainly didn't when you handed me your, your, your driver's yeah. license.
3: <laughs> all those years ago. I up on a lot of people.
2: So, Don, it, look, this has been fascinating. I know we are actually out of time. Um, this is one of the best podcasts we've ever done. Absolutely. You know? It really is.
3: It well, I is. I hope your listeners like it. Wow, who well,
2: cares
1: about them? This is all about us.
2: When when <laughs> I feel challenged and stimulated to think on a deeper level about both about scripture and the world that God made and and it's done by someone I trust and someone who loves the word of God and loves God and you know um isn't afraid to question himself. Man, I got time for that. So this has been fascinating, Don. Um, again, Don is the author of uh, A New Look at an Old Earth. Um, he has written many other books. He has a blog. Don, where where can people go and read some of your stuff outside of your book?
3: Oh, I'm supposed to know that. Um- <laughs> he doesn't know his own
2: URL. That's the best. It's great. Einstein didn't know his own phone number. but I know. Right, you know, hey, it, it it has been good. I I think we do want to have you back because you're 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 definitely blowing my mind right here. But
1: and we actually don't want to have to actually come up with our, our own topic. So no, this is great. We just walk in. We
2: we let you talk really high fluting things. We interject our heckle and jekyll routine, and it works. I I almost feel like it's the three amigos. You know, cool. the smart one and the two stupid ones. I'm so good. you
1: shouldn't I call don stupid <laughs> you and don aren't <laughs> that stupid
3: dstoner.net <laughs> I, I looked it up on the internet while you were three amigoing me
0: <laughs> i'm you sorry what did you say dstoner so as
3: in don stoner it's just one word because <laughs> comment had already been taken right all right one more time don dstoner d-s-t-o-n-e-r dot net That's how you get to it. Or you search on Donald Wayne Stoner. All
2: right. Dstoner.net. All right. That works. That's easy. Well, Pete, while you're doing all this uh, pondering on micro macro evolution, how do you have time to do your church bookkeeping and finances?
1: Well, I use some uh, non-theistic intervention and uh, I reach out to Simplify Church. And I tell you, Josh Henry over there, he takes care of all those needs for me. Is he like your church's surrogate mother? He is my church's surrogate mother. That's amazing. You
2: know what? Uh, pick up the phone today and tell him that you would like him to take from the rib of your church's finances and create something beautiful out of it. Go on over to SimplifiedChurch.com today. You know what? You'll wake up and there'll just be a beautiful church. No, I'm just teasing. Don, Don didn't <laughs> like
1: that. A, a beautiful accounting done for you. I was going to rip off of,
2: I was going to riff off the fact you did not wake up and find that next to you. But anyways, uh, and while you're doing that, Pete, Don't forget that there's also another service available called SermonBoss.com. You want to know what they do? Sermonboss.com? What is Sermonboss.com? Sermonboss.com, Pete. It's when you want to show videos and podcasts and audios and whatever else you got, but you don't want to take people away from your website. You just hook up with Sermonboss.com, and that way they stay on your website while they do everything. That's really helpful for churches, because once they leave you, they'll get lost down the dark hole of the internet, looking up Sumerians and all kinds of other things, and hey, you want them to stick with you. So especially if you got that Don Stoner guy on there, reason, get him thinking, looking up patents and all that. Wouldn't it be great if they could do it from your church's website? That's sermonboss.com. Awesome. Yeah. Well, hey, you guys, thanks for joining us today. Our guest has been Don Stoner. This has been Peyton Jones and Pete Mitchell. And we have been talking things that are mind-blowing. Next week, we want Don to come back and talk quantum physics with us. How about
3: that? Woo! How would you like quantum physics and the soul?
2: Squantum or oh, Quantum? Oh, jeez. This is... Yes. Yes, Okay, please. All right. This was meant to be a three-part series, so we may need to talk to Debbie and get special permission. Can Dawn come out and play? I actually sent an email... <laughs> <laughs> with that written in there. Can Dawn come out and play with us today? So, and Debbie is rad. I'm glad that she got a rad shout out today. She's, she's one of the best people we know, but thank you so much for coming on guys. Thanks for listening. That we want to remind you, this has been the church planner podcast, reminding you that if you want to reach ones, nobody's reaching. You need to go where nobody's going and do
1: what nobody's doing.